Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's Monday, February 26th. Right now on CNN This Morning, Donald Trump closer to clinching the Republican nomination, cruising into Michigan with momentum, and a message of unity ahead of Tuesday's primary. Nikki Haley trounced on her home turf, then finding out one of her biggest financial backers is cutting her off. And a critical test for President Biden, will Michigan voters punish him for his handling of the war in Gaza? All right, it is 5 a.m. here in Washington. You are looking live at Capitol Hill on this Monday morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm Casey Hunt. It's wonderful to be with you. On the eve of the Michigan primary, Donald Trump is dominating and Nikki Haley is soldiering on as her future in the nomination fight becomes increasingly grim. Trump riding a wave of momentum after trouncing Haley by 20 points in her home state of South Carolina. His Republican Party continuing to fall in line. The number two Senate Republican, John Thune of South Dakota, endorsing him over the weekend. Nikki Haley's campaign, meanwhile, says that they raised a million dollars after her Saturday night speech. But the big money starting to dry up. One of her biggest backers, the Koch brothers, announcing they're cutting off funding for her campaign. Haley says she's staying in at least until Super Tuesday, warning that Trump is divisive and a loser in the general election. The former president, of course, does not see it that way. I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. Huge numbers of voters in our Republican primaries who were saying they want an alternative. The Michigan primary is also going to tell us a lot about President Biden's prospects, that that state features a large Arab American population. And Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has been calling on voters to cast their ballots as uncommitted in the Democratic primary to protest the president's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. All right, let's bring in Sophia Kai. She is national politics reporter for Axios, and she joins us now. Uh, Sophia, good morning. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, look, I want to start with where things stand with Nikki Haley and Donald Trump in the wake of that uh, really bruising loss. Now, she she does, though, keep talking about 40 percent, right? 40 percent of Republicans uh, who backed her in her home state. Uh, Donald Trump trying to say, hey, the Republican Party is unified. He stood up on that stage with most of, uh, you know, South Carolina's elected officials behind him. Certainly that's the image that it painted. But the reality here also highlights some of the struggles that Trump is going to have in the suburbs, in particular, when we get to the general election. What were your takeaways from what we saw in South Carolina? Yeah, absolutely. The suburbs are the places that Donald Trump is really going to have to show that he's strong, particularly in places like Pennsylvania and a lot of these battleground states. I mean, Nikki Haley is staying in. Uh, she lost the suburbs, actually, to uh, to Donald Trump. 
Um, but sure, you know, but there were the places where, like, if you look at the, if you actually were to look at the map of South Carolina, you're yeah. going to see that the places she did the best are it's suburban Charleston, quite frankly, outside Columbia, the kinds of areas where Donald Trump may have trouble against President Biden in a general election. Except we'd be talking about places like Arizona, the suburbs of Phoenix, Atlanta, the suburbs of Georgia, etc. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most of the voters that Trump is going to have to really work on is those college-educated voters, is those voters who believe correctly that Biden won the 2020 election. And so those are the voters that Trump is going to have to bring into his coalition. That's going to be his toughest battle in November. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about Haley's path forward here. She's obviously going on to Michigan. Um, there's a super PAC that's supporting mm -hmm. her that's, uh, you know, bought half a million dollars or reserved half a million dollars worth of time in Michigan. They say they're going to be with her all the way. But the Koch network has said, you know yep. what, we're going to spend our money elsewhere. We're going to look at Senate and House campaigns. What does that mean for her? It means that she's lost a really big resource that she's relied on. They've spent $31 million on her. They've helped her get out to vote. You know, they spent money on advertising, on making phone calls for her. She's lost that really big resource. And I think along the way, they've known that it was an uphill battle. They've known that, you know, Trump could likely be the nominee. And now what they're doing is that they're focusing their money on the Senate races, the House races, races that they say are going to be harder now that Trump will likely be the nominee. Right. Well, I mean, I, and of course, we're looking ahead to, to Super Tuesday. And if she's going to stay in, fine. But that's the kind of place where you really need yep. a network like the Koch Network, right? If you, they actually do have the, the, and you can see kind of on the screen uh, here, just um, kind of what the, what the path looks like forward for her. Um, you need organization if you're trying to fight all the way across the map. You need a lot more money. Uh, there's a primary in California. I mean, that alone is so yep. incredibly expensive. Let's talk about Michigan uh, for a second. And interestingly, um, well, there's two things going on on the Republican side. First of all, there you are really seeing kind of the division in the Republican Party, right? I mean, there's quite literally two people claiming to be the true chair of the Republican Party in yeah. that state. Um, and the way that they're going to award delegates is, is, is kind of a mess um, to the point where, you know, it's, it's hard to say what we might learn in Michigan on the Republican side. Yeah. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with the Republican side, I mean, it's, it's one of 15 states. It's um, a state where, you know, the Trump folks have already argued they're going to win most of the delegates. And on the Democratic side, that's where the focus will really be because Trump, uh, I'm sorry, Biden will still pretty easily win that primary. But there's this uncommitted effort for voters who are protesting Biden's actions on the Israel-Palestine war uh, to come out and vote uncommitted. And we have at least one congresswoman who is backing that effort, Rashida Tlaib, that we've talked about. Um, and you have Governor Whitmer saying that she really doesn't know what will happen. Uh, in Michigan. And that is where we have our eyes on. Yeah, it's a pretty key test uh, for, for Governor uh, Whitmer, who, of course, has a, a, a bright future, possibly in presidential politics at some point. Uh, but that Rashida Tlaib actually, you know, made a video, is publicly pushing yep. people. Um, the mayor of Dearborn uh, coming out and uh, causing some concern for the, the Biden campaign as well. Definitely interesting to watch. Sophia Kayavaxio. Sophia, thanks very much for kicking us off today. All right, ahead here, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and a defenseless Europe, a scenario that could become reality sooner rather than later. Plus, a Virginia couple missing and feared dead after their yacht was allegedly hijacked in Grenada. And next, a developing story in the Middle East, a shakeup inside the Palestinian Authority. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. A developing story overnight. The prime minister of the Palestinian Authority and his government resigning. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live from Tel Aviv with this. Um, Nick, good morning to you. Uh, Was this move expected? Why did this happen? Yeah, not entirely unexpected, and it had been foreshadowed perhaps for the past week or so. Remembering back in January when Secretary of State Antony Blinken came here, one of the things that he called for was meaningful reform within the Palestinian Authority. And he actually, before he left, said he did have commitment from the Palestinian Authority for that reform. Um, That could be what we're beginning to see here. Why does it matter? Why is it important? Well, the Prime Minister, who's just resigned, Mohammed Shatir, has said that it's important for the Palestinians to form a government of national unity, a government that is made up not of different factions, but of of competences, of people that are competent to fill the roles. And all of this is important because the United States has been championing the cause and the path forward for an independent Palestinian state. And one of the prerequisites for that is to find a Palestinian governing body authority that can actually take on not just the West Bank, where the Palestinian Authority is right now, but Gaza as well. And it comes as well at a significant week when Russia has invited all the Palestinian factions from Gaza, from uh, the West Bank, from all around the region to meet in Moscow. So this will give them an opportunity to hammer out um, that, that national unity position. Is this going to mean massive fundamental change in the short term? No. But it also underscores how unpopular the Palestinian Authority president is right now in the West Bank. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a very well-trusted and respected pollster in the West Bank who said the Palestinian Authority president um, has a disapproval rating of 92%. And that reflects across the whole Palestinian Authority. Yeah, really difficult uh, to kind of claim any authority if that many of your people don't trust you, tell pollsters they don't trust you. Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv, thank you very much for that. 
All right. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says that 31,000 of his soldiers have been killed since the Russian invasion began two years ago. He also says that Moscow is preparing for another major offensive. But Ukraine faces diminishing weapons and ammunition supplies as Congress struggles to pass critical aid for Kyiv. And then there's this foreboding economist cover. They show it this way. Putin is eyeing Europe. Donald Trump, identifiable just by his hair, has his back turned. And they write this. Russia is becoming more dangerous. America is less reliable. And Europe remains unprepared. The problem is simply put, but the scale of the solution is hard to comprehend. This, of course, nine months before an election that could put Donald Trump back in the Oval Office. CNN's Max Foster is joining us now live from London. Uh, Max, uh, good morning to you. Um, This really kind of captures um, so much of the kind of existential questions that are facing Europe directly, but also really the entire architecture of uh, the post-World War uh, Pax Americana, really. Um, What do you see in, you know, as we are hitting the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine? Well, we're now questioning, aren't we, America's role in the world? What role does America want in the world? Is it going to be a global policeman uh, standing up for democracy and freedom? It's, uh, you know, those traditional sentiments. Or is it going to withdraw from the world and focus much more on problems back at home, which obviously will play much better running up to uh, the election? The reality is, you know, these meetings around Ukraine money in Washington are existential for many parts of the world because uh, without that money, Ukraine won't be able to win the war. I think that's the analysis you get from any expert that speaks to this. If Ukraine can't win the war, uh, how far will Russia carry on into Ukraine? Does it carry on beyond Ukraine? Uh, and, you know, that, where, the, where the, the, the comment that the economist is making here is that Europe is unprepared to fill in that gap. It can't, it's not a cohesive group. It's a selection of different nations who have their own tensions. It can't step up into that global policeman role. can't even probably defend uh, Ukraine against Russia because it's not coordinated enough and doesn't have enough resource to put in there. So it is existential and it's all coming, you know, it really starts in Washington, this conversation right now. Right. Well, I mean, it's and even the argument that Europe just wouldn't even have the capacity to defend itself in many cases, that, that the defense uh, capabilities in, in many countries have have withered away because there's been so much protection from the Americans. Uh, Max, I want to show you um, the what the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, had to say over the weekend. He said that he talked to the House Speaker, Mike Johnson. He claims Mike Johnson um, says he wants to do something about uh, Ukraine. But here was his warning. Watch Sullivan. History is watching whether Speaker Johnson will put that bill on the floor. If he does, it will pass. We'll get Ukraine what it needs for Ukraine to succeed. If he doesn't, then we will not be able to give Ukraine the tools required for it to stand up to Russia. And Putin will be the major beneficiary of that. So history is watching, he says. I mean, Max, I think the reality here, uh, you know, at at the Capitol, just just down the road from where I'm sitting right now, is that Republicans are so divided that there is no clear path forward for this. And the stakes, as Sullivan has said, I mean, I think the other phrase he used at one point on the Sunday shows was, hey, he could bend history right now. Um, But Johnson is a pretty small figure in the face of this. 
but he's sort of extending the, you know, what we we're just talking about there, wasn't he? So if America and Europe can't hold back Russia, for example, this really speaks to, you know, the world order. Uh, if the West is um, divided on how it responds or it becomes more insular, it does create a vacuum uh, which Russia and, you know, in the background, China could step into. Uh, so then you end up in this situation about who is the global policeman. And if Russia and China work together, other big powers, uh, then it does change the whole dynamic of how global power operates. And, you know, the elephant in the room is, you know, if Russia is allowed to take Ukraine, uh, does that make China more likely to go towards Taiwan? And that's where you have that, you know, we've talked about it before, that, you know, the dreaded US versus China tension, which you really yeah. don't want exacerbating on any level. Indeed. All right, Max Foster Forrest in London. Max, thanks very much. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, All right, just ahead here, President Biden summoning the top four congressional leaders to the White House with a government shutdown. Oh, remember those? Just around the corner. Plus, just revealed the man behind the fake AI-generated Joe Biden robocalls. All right, 22 minutes past the hour. Time for your morning roundup. A Virginia couple is feared dead after prison escapees allegedly hijacked their yacht in Grenada. Kathy Brandel and Ralph Hendry were spending the winter cruising the Eastern Caribbean after taking their yacht from Virginia to Antigua. An inmate who attacked a deputy with pepper spray and escaped from custody after being treated at a hospital is on the loose in Louisiana. 51-year-old Leon Ruffin was serving a life sentence for second-degree murder. And a political consultant paid by Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips' primary campaign against President Biden admits he was behind the robocall that used a fake AI-generated voice of President Biden urging New Hampshire voters to stay home on primary day. All right, a cold front in the West brings snow and wind to the Pacific Northwest and Rockies today, while the Midwest braces for a severe storm threat. Our weatherman Van Dam is tracking all of it for us. Derek, <laughs> good morning to you. It's also going to be, my phone says, 64 degrees in February here in Washington. Okay, enjoy. <laughs> how about 90? How about 95 degrees in Dallas, Fort Worth today? That is temperatures we would feel like in the middle of May. Summer heat for them. Uh, this is really truly the clash of two seasons: winter to the northwest, summer and spring across the nation's eastern two thirds. And this clash is going to create all kinds of wild weather. So from snow squalls across the Pacific Northwest, as this cold front drops south, it'll bring several inches, if not feet, of snow to the Colorado Rockies. Winter storm warnings just outside of Denver, Salt Lake City, stretching east of Seattle, and a lot of wind energy with this as well. So with wind and with dry conditions in advance of this cold front, we get the potential at least for fire weather. Uh, so look out for critical fire dangers across uh, the plains. Strong winds, dry air, a lot of warm temperatures. In fact, yesterday in Colorado Springs, we saw a wildfire, about 150 acres burning in this general region. But nonetheless, this is not what we want to see heading into the first few days of this kind of spring-like weather pattern uh, that is kind of an ominous sign of things to come. Now, here's a look at the cold front that is going to move eastward. So this clash of seasons that is going to bring a severe weather threat tomorrow across the Midwest, including Chicago. You've got to keep an eye to the sky. 
I want to highlight this, damaging winds, large hail, and even a few tornadoes extending all the way into southern Michigan, southward towards Indianapolis and St. Louis. So a very active weather pattern with record warmth, very spring-like temperatures. You mentioned it, Casey, in the middle 60s for you in D.C., even warmer other places, too. So very abnormal weather. Pretty wild, but at least I'll be able to get the yep. kids outside this afternoon, right? Love your right. studio, by the way. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, great. and thanks for yeah. continuing to be a part of the mornings. I'm really grateful to have you. To Our weatherman, Van Dam, Derek, I'll see you tomorrow. All right. All right. Up next here, Nikki Haley's campaign taking a major financial hit, her next move, if she's forced to drop out. Plus, President Biden's plan to pressure Congress over aid for Ukraine. It's all on the line as a government shutdown looms. All right, uh, we've got a live uh, look at the Washington Monument uh, and the Capitol behind me. Thank you very much for being up with us this morning. I'm Casey Hunt. Things just went from bad to worse for Nikki Haley on the eve of the Michigan primary, fresh off of her loss in her home state of South Carolina. One of Haley's biggest backers has cut her off. The Koch Network is officially suspending their financial support for the Haley campaign. Still, she remains determined to stay in the race. You can't have a candidate who's going to win a primary who can't win a general. You look at those first early states. They can say Donald Trump won. I give him that. But he, as a Republican incumbent, didn't get 40% of the vote of the primary. It's not really clear how much longer Haley can go on if she does drop out. Where will voters turn? And what does she do about the question of whether she should endorse Donald Trump? Axios publisher Nicholas Johnston is here with us on set. Uh, Nick, good morning. It's wonderful good morning. to Great see to be you. On set. This is I fun. know. After so many years of seeing your family exactly. menus behind your chalkboard at home, um, look. Let's talk about the 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 future here uh, for Haley. I mean, it, the Coke money is obviously important, but that right. organization is particularly critical ahead of something like Super Tuesday. That said. She's got a point. 40% of the party is not voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. Where do they go? Uh, I mean, the cock money wasn't all the money. Like, she raised $13 million uh, in January. As long as small donors are still funding her money, it's not running a massive campaign. You know, she could probably say it indefinitely just with angry Democrats um, sending her money. So I think it's a real open question is how long she'll stay. And she has not made any hints of saying when she will drop out. She's been very committed as far as like, look, we're going to go this to the very end. What is interesting to me is look at the rhetoric that surrounds both of the campaigns to get closer to a possible end game as Donald Trump begins to dial down those attacks after uh, each of his wins that may try and leave an opening for let Nikki to leave and maybe good graces. If Nikki Haley began to talk a little less differently about the former president, is that an opening to maybe a graceful exit? Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I mean, she can. <laughs> I feel like the anger from the Trump side is pretty intense toward Nikki Haley. Like right. I, oh, I, I struggle to see kind of a reconciliation there. And for her, I mean, she's so leaned into and I think she's found success leaning into the sort of anti-Trump. You know, she's, not, she's not going quite as far as Liz Cheney, for sure. Yeah. Um, but she does, and this is the part that I, I keep getting stuck on, she does clearly want a future in the Republican Party. It seems obvious she wants to run in 2028. And that's why this conundrum about 
how she handles Donald Trump is so intense because she's lit up these supporters by attacking him. She can't give that up. Yeah, but she's not, she, this is not, she's not the first person to navigate this issue. We've been covering Trump for how many years now and how many candidates have we written about it, have we covered on television who have gone after President Trump in very personal ways, who have been attacked by former President Trump in very personal ways. Every single one of them, almost to a man, except for maybe Chris Christie, have eventually gotten on board and said Trump is the man to lead the party, Trump is the man to be the next president. So will Nikki Haley follow that exact same path. I've learned the hard way. Never rule anything out when dealing with uh, Donald <laughs> well, Trump. Well, that is true. I mean, I de- that is definitely a lesson. I, I agree with you. I also I, I also have learned. I mean, it is remarkable. Just look at what Ted Cruz went through. And now he's exactly, his, exactly. Uh, you know, he didn't endorse either. But now look at him. Um, I mean, I guess the, the one thing that, you know, for Haley um, going forward is like what happens to and and let me show you kind of how she put it, right, yeah. in talking about the 40 percent uh, of people that backed her and what would be necessary to get them yep. on board. Take a look. This was her uh, yesterday. Watch. The issue at hand is he's not going to get the 40 percent if he's going and calling out my supporters and saying they're barred permanently from MAGA. He's not going to get the 40% by calling them names. He's not going to get the 40% by trying to take over the RNC so that it pays all his legal fees. She has a point there, right? But I do take your point also. I mean, he does seem to have listened to his advisors much more. I mean, they put him out on stage before Haley even had a chance to speak, so he couldn't even really react to her. It seemed like the stuff that came out after her speech was a little bit angrier, but... You're right. He did stay on message. Is that going to This is the $64,000 question in the entire election. Remember, Donald Trump run narrowly in 2016. He lost in 2020. Is he behaving in a way and he's running a campaign that can add votes to that tally? And what Nikki Haley is saying, I think it's a very valid point, is that he's not and that there is a base for him and that he will not go above that. And if he can't go above that, then Joe Biden will be reelected. And Nikki Haley is the only person who can expand. I mean, we've talked a lot and obviously Trump romped in South Carolina. I'm not trying to take away from that. However, there do seem to be some warning signs in that exit polling data about the number of people who voted for Haley who said that they wouldn't vote for Trump, about that 30 percent who say if he's convicted of something, that, that would be a, a problem yeah. for them. I, I mean, mean, what did you see? 100 percent. Like, I view this interestingly, is that if you view Donald Trump as a challenger, then, of course, he's on a, on a barnstorming tour. He's one of the first four uh, states. No candidate has ever done that as a new candidate. But if you view him as an incumbent, which you kind of can, he says he yeah. won the yeah, last election. Can. He's yeah. been running as, a, as an incumbent. He's taking over the RNC as an incumbent president, these numbers are disastrous. If Joe Biden had gone into South Carolina in a challenge primary and only won 60% of the play, we'd be going crazy here in Washington. <laughs> Rightfully so. Exactly. Wall-to-wall <laughs> coverage. And so I think through that prism, and I think that's what the, the Haley campaign is trying to emphasize, that he's not as strong as you think he is. Yeah. All right. Nick Johnson of Axios, thanks very Great much for be being here. here. Come back soon. All right. Up next here, President Biden is going to meet with top congressional leaders at the White House tomorrow to try and push Congress to pass additional aid for Ukraine and avoid a government shutdown after congressional leaders failed to reach a deal to keep the government running last Friday. All of this as concerns continue to mount about the consequences of inaction in Ukraine. Ukraine is weeks away from giving up significant ground, and we cannot allow Russia to win. So what we are doing is adding an additional pressure point to get a bill to the floor that has bipartisan support in the House. All right. Joining me now is congressional reporter for the Associated Press, Farnoosh Amiri. Farnoosh, uh, good morning. Good to see you. Um, Let's 
start with what uh, Brian Fitzpatrick uh, said there. Now, why is Brian Fitzpatrick so important? He has been leading, um, w- along with Democrats, this effort to try to build a bipartisan alternative that they could potentially force onto the House floor over the objections of, of House leadership to try to move quickly to get aid to Ukraine. Um, how realistic do you think this is? I mean, he appeared with one of his de- Democratic colleagues, Jer- Jared Golden, saying they are going to try to rush this, this bipartisan, and it would have border uh, money and policy changes in it, too. Um, do you see it happening? I mean, you know, normally, and there's, if you look back, there's a reason that discharge petitions have not been discussed more or reported on, mainly because they rarely go beyond even making to 218, which is the required number of signatures to get on the floor, let alone passing when it gets on the floor. But in this case, as Brian Fitzpatrick told CBS, you know, he and the and Jared Golden and other, um, you know, centrist uh, members of Congress have talked to the parliamentarian, have gotten her, you know, the parliamentarian to go down from the 30-day requisite needed before it can ripe and come to the floor to seven days, which really changes the dynamic in in this urgency that they're trying to portray. And I think it's, it's interesting if they can get 218 votes, um, but I would also just go back to the history of discharge petitions and the fact <laughs> that they have not been successful. It, in the they past. very rarely happen. I think you got to yeah. go back to Char- uh, 2015, Charlie Dent, a very obscure kind of policy to even... Or the minimum uh, wage really effort there. to raise Democrats to raise the minimum wage. That also failed. Right, for sure. Um, so, Farnoosh... One of the things that Democrats have been trying to do um, over the last couple of days is to really emphasize that the House Speaker is kind of at the fulcrum of history right now in how he decides uh, to do this. Um, This was Senator uh, Chris Van Hollen over the weekend. Watch. So the question is whether, you know, Speaker Johnson wants to be complicit um, in giving Putin a a, a victory, a win. at this historic moment or not. And I do continue to have confidence that at the end of the day, the House um, will do the right thing, that enough members of the House will demand a vote because of this historic moment. How is Speaker Johnson, I mean, he's a rookie in this job. I mean, how's he gonna receive uh, these kind of conflicting messages? Because he's got on the one hand, um, and Jake Sullivan was a little more positive in how he talked about it, he said, you know, Mr. Speaker, you can bend history if you want to um, against people who in his own party who are going to try to kick him out of the job, who say that they're going to try to do to him what they did to Kevin McCarthy if he goes forward with this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the dynamics at play for Johnson are really similar for McCarthy. But the only benefit that he appears to have is that they saw what a dragged out and, you know, honestly embarrassing process it was to remove McCarthy and to replace him. And I think the fact that we're in an election year, the fact that, you know, Johnson is one of the more far right, you know, speakers that the House has ever had, Republicans, including conservatives, are not willing to let go of the guy that they finally were able to prop up in this high post for something that they know they're going to have to let go of. And I think like, you know, Johnson's done this before. He's had to make deals with Democrats and he turned out fine. I'm not as worried about his ability to stay in the job, but I think it's really interesting to see what kind of deal he makes because he has said no more CRs. And he said that last time, he did it, and this time right. he's saying it again. But, you know, what deal he makes with Democrats in the last minute will be really interesting. Right. Week. And of course, Friday. May, they may or may not ruin your weekend as the congressional reporter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Farnoosh Miri, thank you very thank you. much uh, for being here today.
All right, coming up at the top of the hour, Senator Joe Manchin joins us live. Does Nikki Haley look like a third-party candidate? And next, Donald Trump under fire for comments like this. We've all seen the mugshot. And you know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We've all seen the mugshot. And you know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population. It's incredible. You see black people walking around with my mugshot. You know, they do shirts. Then I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. Former President Donald Trump under fire for those remarks at the Black Conservative Federation's gala in Columbia, South Carolina on Friday night. That was just hours before polls opened in that state's Republican primary. Trump went on to win there by double digits, but he did face criticism from his opponents over those comments. The Biden campaign, in a statement, called them, quote, shameful and racist, writing, quote, Trump wants to take us backwards. And his remaining Republican challenger, Nikki Haley, responded this way. It's disgusting, but that's what happens when he goes off the teleprompter. That's the chaos that comes with Donald Trump. That's the offensiveness that's going to happen every day between now and the general election, which is why I continue to say Donald Trump cannot win a general election. All right, let's bring in CNN political reporter Elena Treen, who covers Donald Trump uh, for us. Um, Elena, let me show you what uh, Congressman Byron Donalds, he's one of uh, Trump's biggest supporters, honestly, in the Congress. Um, he was on uh, Meet the Press over the weekend, uh, basically defending uh, President Trump. Let's watch. This is political persecution from the Department of Justice and from radical DAs throughout our country. This is something similar that black people had to deal with the, with the justice system themselves. What Americans don't want to see, especially black Americans and anybody else, they don't want to see a politicized Justice Department. So he, of course, kind of made that again about uh, Trump's focus on Justice Department. But I will say... Um, you know, I'm curious, your reporting, Donald Trump has been very focused on trying to increase his support with, with uh, black voters, especially with black men. I mean, is that what's going on here? What's your reporting telling you? Yes, that's exactly what was going on there. And I mean, obviously, he was speaking to an audience where he thought that those remarks uh, would land better. Uh, I think there's questions about that. But... The black vote and, and trying to target black voters is key to Donald Trump's campaign, especially as they are pivoting even more in earnest now after South Carolina to a general election. They recognize that the general election is not going to be in the bag, unlike in the primaries where he was overwhelmingly the favorite in essentially every contest. They know that it's an uphill battle uh, against Joe Biden and ahead of November. And because of that, they really want to chip away at his support with these key coalitions, with these key different demographics. And the black vote is one of them. And they very much, um, I, I know from my conversations, I don't think they form like formally have their full plan yet on how to do that. I think this rhetoric was 
some of Donald Trump speaking off the cuff, some of his team also prepping some of these remarks. They're still figuring out how they're going to try to court them and chip away at Biden's support. But they see that as crucial to helping them in any general against Joe Biden. Do you know, I mean, do you know from your reporting which of those remarks were off the cuff, which were intended? I mean, where, because, I mean, Haley does kind of have a point, right, that uh, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get when Donald Trump goes off the teleprompter. And from a strictly, like, political win elections perspective, like, that's not great for the Republicans. Right. I, the ones that are a little bit more... Uh controversial were the ones I believe that Donald Trump was speaking, not using the teleprompter. And listen, this is something that his campaign also recognizes that they'll never be able to really change. Donald Trump will always be Donald Trump. I know that even on Saturday when uh, he was going to take the stage and give his victory speech uh, in South Carolina, his team had repeatedly told him, told him, do not attack Nikki Haley, do not attack Nikki Haley. And he didn't. He ultimately did not even mention her name. But they had no idea when he got up on stage whether or not he was going to. And we saw in New Hampshire, they didn't want him to go after her the way he did. And of course, he very sharply criticized her. So that's going to be continue to be something that his campaign deals with. Even though, as they're saying, we need a shift to a general election, we want to leave Nikki Haley behind. They're encouraging Donald Trump to ignore her. They never can really control him. He's going to do what he wants to do. And he loves speaking off the cuff at these events. They, he feels like he's in a room with people, um, all of his supporters. He feels emboldened by that. And I think you're going to continue to hear this type of rhetoric, regardless of what his campaign tries to get him to do. For sure. Um, let's talk broad. I mean, let's, let's flip this around and talk about, I mean, you mentioned th there is, for Democrats, a potential coalition problem, right? Um, and we can put the number Gallup polling on party affiliation among black voters, uh, up on the screen here. Um, in 2020, 77% Democrat, 11% Republicans. But then you look at 2023, um, and that's changing. Uh, and it's not in Democrats' favor. Um, we're about to head to Michigan. Their primary is tomorrow mm -hmm. um, on both, honestly, the Democratic primaries in some ways more interesting uh, because of Arab American voters. But it does seem to me that it's a state like Michigan where these changes in black voting patterns could actually really impact the general election, because just to remind everyone, Trump won Michigan in 2016, mm -hmm. barely, but he did win. And then Biden won it um, in 2020. Um, what's your sense of how uh, the Biden campaign was going to look at this heading into 24? I guess we are in 24. Yeah, I think that's as well something that the Biden campaign is still working on. I mean, this is going to be where a lot of these crucial races are fought. I think if you look at the battleground states that both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are looking at and know they need to win places like Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, as you mentioned. They're all places that are going to be very tough. And we've seen go for Donald Trump in the past, go for Biden in 2020. And I do believe that the not just black voters, but uh, Hispanic voters. I know Donald Trump in Michigan, you mentioned going really hard after the working class voters and union voters that Biden has. That is where they believe the race will be won. I think the issue is that even though both candidates have really been using their rhetoric from a general campaign uh, perspective for weeks, their campaigns haven't necessarily built out the infrastructure for the general yet. So I think we're still waiting to see how they'll do that. All right. Elena Train for us. Elena, thank you very much thank for you. being here. All right. Time now for sports. Iowa superstar Caitlin Clark closing in on history as she tries to become the NCAA's all-time leading scorer. Coy Wire has this morning's Bleacher Report. Coy, good morning. What's up, Casey? Caitlin Clark has shot her way within striking distance of the all-time scoring record set by Pete Maravich way back in 1970. Uh, he did this in just three seasons at LSU. 
3,667 points is the goal. And Caitlin Clark is so good that even when she scores 24 points like she did in the Hawkeyes win against Illinois yesterday, some consider it an off day. And Clark's so much more than just a shooter. Notching 15 rebounds, 10 assists, marking her 16th career triple-double. That's the second most all-time behind Sabrina Ionescu. So Clark now needs just 51 points to pass Pistol Pete with two regular seasons to go, uh, including the season finale. That's Sunday against number two, Ohio State. Messi mania alive and well and just as magical in season two for Miami, trailing 1-0 in stoppage time to LA Galaxy, the 36-year-old superstar playing tic-tac-toe with Jordi Alba before burying his first goal of the season to pull off a 1-1 draw. And check them out going three wide around the final turn. Daniel Suarez, Ryan Blaney, and Kyle Busch in an epic three-way photo finish. Suarez edging Blaney in Atlanta by three one-thousandths of a second. It's the third closest finish between first and second place in NASCAR Cup Series history. That's about 30 times quicker than the blink of an eye, Casey. From fast cars to a classic car, Hockey Hall of Famer Chris Chilios. Returning to the rink in an old-school caddy as his hometown Chicago Blackhawks retire his jersey, but he wasn't the only one making a return to the shy. Three-time Stanley Cup champ Patrick Kane back in the Windy City to face his former team for the first time since being traded away last year. Listen to this. The standing ovation lasted more than a minute, and despite now playing for their biggest rival, Kane getting another massive cheer when he scored the game winner in overtime, giving the Red Wings a 3-2 win. Finally, an accomplishment fit for a movie script. 29-year-old Jake Knapp getting a win on the PGA Tour less than two years after working as a bouncer at a nightclub to make ends meet, finishing 19 under at the Mexico Open. He earns a cool $1.45 million. And check out his family back in California cheering as he tapped in the winner. And his girlfriend, total shock, rushing to give him a hug from uh, bouncing at a club to swinging the clubs. Knapp says this is unforgettable. When I have all these people ask me for, for autographs and pictures and, and questions and podcasts and all that stuff, it's like, it's hilarious to think two years ago I was working security at a bar and, you know, it was it was a much different scenario in my life. So, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget this. I mean, for the rest of my life, this will be my first win on the PGA Tour, um, whether it's my first one that only one that I ever have or it's the first of many, this will always be one that I'll remember. To make this one even sweeter, Knapp gets an invitation to play at Augusta National in a, oh, just over a month from now, Casey. Ah, uh, Coy, that's just amazing. <laughs> Congratulations is. to him. Really wonderful. And thank you, Coy, for being with us. I'll see you tomorrow. You got it. All right, coming up here, flashing warning signs for Donald Trump, even after a double-digit victory in South Carolina. Plus, ace campaign guru David Axelrod joins us to answer our burning questions. It's a new feature. We're calling Ask Axe Anything. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Monday, February 26th, right now on CNN This Morning. Donald Trump with all the momentum heading into Michigan, while Nikki Haley gets dropped by one of her top donors. Fertility clinics halting IVF treatments after Alabama's Supreme Court declared frozen embryos are people. Republicans now dealing with the fallout. And... Why don't you tell the people the truth for a change? CNN This Morning comes to Washington. Senator Joe Manchin joins us live in studio for our inaugural voyage.
All right, a live look at our nation's capital at 6 a.m. here on the East Coast. Good morning, everyone. I'm Casey Hunt. It's great to be with you this morning. Over the weekend, former President Donald Trump won more than 60 percent of the vote in South Carolina, beating Nikki Haley in her home state. Still, that means nearly 40 percent of Republicans in that conservative southern state did not vote for Trump. Haley made clear this weekend that she won't drop out of the race when so many voters, on, let's be honest, they're on both sides of the aisle, they're not happy with their choices for president. Haley herself even sounding at times like a third-party candidate. I'm not giving up this fight when a majority of Americans disapprove of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We can't afford four more years of Biden's failures or Trump's lack of focus. All right, joining me now is another politician who is worried about polarization and partisanship in our country, so much so that he considered pursuing his own third party presidential run, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia. Senator, thanks so much for being here. Well, it's always good to be with you, an inaugural kickoff. Again, we, <laughs> we make this a ritual here. We have done this before, haven't we? Have we have done before, but I'm so proud of you. Uh, thank you. Um, and thank you very much uh, for, for coming in. Um, you are um, heading to Michigan right after mm-hmm. uh, we have this yeah. conversation, um, and you had been on this list tour as you were deciding what to do about your own, uh, whether or not you were going to run. Right. You said you're not going to, but it does sound like you're kind of still on a little bit of a listening tour. Casey, the listening tour is really finding out where the majority of Americans are, and that's in the middle. 55 to 60 percent of Americans consider themselves center left, center right. We call it the centrist part of America. They feel like they're homeless and helpless. They don't know which way to go. They're pushed either left, far left, or far right. They don't want to go there, so some are going to set out. Some are going to take the plunge and basically not be real happy about it, but they'll do it. So we're just talking to them to find out how do we bring the candidates back? How do we bring the parties back to represent all of America, not just extremes? Yeah. Do you think President Biden is too extreme? I think he went too far left. And I've told him that. And I've been very clear. It's not the Joe Biden that basically he ran in 2020 and told us I know how to bring it back. He does. He was a very centrist uh, senator when he was there, center left, but he was centrist. And it looks like they, they just grabbed him that part of the uh, uh, extreme party, but grabbed him, pulled him left, and he's been over there. We'd like to bring him back. What does he need to do to get your endorsement? Well, I think we'll just see when, what happens at the end here. You know, we're going to get to the end pretty quick. Super Tuesday's going to show you what you right. actually have. How are you able to bring them back to there to where we have, um, when you look at the problems that we're facing right now, the border. Right. Okay, too long. We need to get the border fixed. And I've said this. If they can't come together in Washington, if politics is stopping us from doing the right thing and securing our border, then he has to do a national emergency. It's a crisis. And you want him to, to declare a national emergency? I think he has order. to. I mean, I really, truly believe that if they're going to play games. The purity test is not going to work. And the purity test is in the House, they've always believed if you have 218 of one or the other. So 218 Republicans, you had to have 218 votes by Republicans only or by Democrats only, whoever was in the majority to get anything passed. Those days are gone. You have to build coalitions, and that's how it used to work. It used to work as coalitions, and I would like to see that again, and I think that hopefully we'll move in that direction. If it's Biden versus Trump in November, who are you going to vote for? Well, at that time there, you know, you're going, I know who I can't vote for, and I've said that very, very— You can't vote for Trump is what right, you said. I cannot. I said I love my country. So does that mean do you will that. vote for Biden? Well, I would do everything I can to make sure they come back. I think that basically they need to know where we're going to win from. If he's going to win, he's got to win by attracting more of the center. That's center left, center right, people that feel homeless. That's who we're talking to. They want that person. They want their representative. They want their president to come back and represent 
all of America, and that's where you make your decisions. Most people run their life from the center. They don't run their life from extremes. Businesses don't succeed from the extremes. Nothing seems to work except for politics. And in politics, only in Washington. Governors, the National Governors Association, you can't tell Democrat from Republican. They have the same problems trying to help each other. I thought when I came to Washington, this is the big leagues. Maybe they'll show me how to do it even better. Well, it looked like I was going into the little leagues because it basically, pick your side, fight for your side, and don't worry about compromise. This country works on cooperation. It works on compromise. So you're leaving the Senate, mm-hmm. right? Yes, and there are fewer and fewer, let's yeah. be real, leaders in the Senate, certainly you mentioned the House of Representatives, who, who occupy that space mm-hmm. in the center. Um, is there any way you would run for Senate as somebody, something other than a Democrat at I this point? I have no intentions of running. I was, I was very clear on what I've said, and, and I've been here. I've come to the conclusion I think there should be term limits. There really should be term limits for our country. But you're never going to run. You're not going to run as an independent. You're not going to run as a Republican. I have no intentions whatsoever of doing that. And okay. I've said this. The reason is I, I've done everything I could, and I've been here 14 years. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not seeing the changes that need to be made here. We had some very, very productive years, and we've done things when it was 50-50. You know why? <laughs> no one could blame the other side. Everybody had to work together if you want to get something done. And we had started with five Ds and five Rs. Our, our moderate group, and we start doing mm-hmm. things. Gangs. And we had some great. We used to hang out with a lot of gangs. One, not so many gangs anymore. One seventeen. <laughs> we had you know the hundred seventeenth Congress will go down as one of the most productive. The hundred eighteenth, which we're in right now, will go down as the least productive Congress in the history of the United States of America. That's a sad scenario. Yeah. Let me bring you back to Michigan for a second, because President Biden is under pressure from mm-hmm. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib to. Uh, for uh, she's asked voters, Democrats in Michigan, to vote. Uh, to say uncommitted, right, uh, in the primary there. Um, what do you think Michigan voters should do well, in the primary Well, that's totally unreasonable to ask any, uh, ask any group of people that we have a crisis going on around the world. The world's in up- upheaval right now. And they're asking that, uh, uh, that we believe that we should, or I think she believes that we should be putting pressure on uh, Israel. Israel, Israel for the uh, ceasefire. Okay. And I believe the president's been very clear, and what I've seen how he's handled this has been very good, from saying that, you know, we'll do everything we can for humanitarian pauses, but there has to be willingness on both sides to come together and want to sit down. So to have a ceasefire when the other side's only going to reload and have no intentions, if they want a ceasefire, then release all the hostages. If Hamas releases the hostages, then they have a reason to ask for a ceasefire and sit down and try to negotiate, but not until then. And I don't think in reality that's going to happen. So asking for uh, people not to vote and put pressure on an unreasonable request is, is, is not in, in the cards right now. The other political story in Michigan, of course, is the Senate race. Uh, Mike Rogers, uh, Republican uh, in that race, Alyssa Slotkin expected um, as the Demo- likely Democratic uh, nominee. What do you think would be the best outcome for the country? I think you have Senate two quality race? candidates right there. Michigan has a, a, has a quality slate, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I know them both. They're both friends of mine. I wish them well. These are, are you going to support the Democrats these in are that two, race? These are two good people. We're going to see what, what elevates and what comes out of this and support the best person. Are you considering have, supporting the Republicans oh, in this I, race? I have no problem supporting Republicans anywhere in this country that have put their country before their party. Now, basically, I have no problem with Democrats either. I'm more in the center here. <laughs> but you're not saying you're going to back the Democrat for sure in the Michigan Senate race. On any races. Forget, um, not, not just Michigan. Anyway, we're looking to basically have people representing the centrist part. 
the, the, the uh, center-right, center-left, that part of the country that makes all the decisions how you run your life. They're not being represented. As you said, we don't have many gangs more. The gangs we had before were people who were like-minded. We didn't worry about, are you a Democrat or Republican? We have a problem. We had infrastructure problems. We had uh, chips problems. We had basically supply chain problems. Now we have a tremendous problem, I think, with the debt of the nation. No one's taking that seriously at all. Mitt Romney and I have been working very diligently on uh, Fiscal uh, Accountability Act, trying to get our finances back in order in America to make sure that we can pay our bills and be strong. So all of this said, I mean, the presidential race is still ongoing. Nikki Haley is still in the Republican Mm -hmm. race. You have said you're not ready to say that you are going to endorse or vote for Joe Biden. Do you think Nikki Haley would be a better president than Joe Biden? Well, I'm not going to say who would be a better president. I know that uh, that Nikki Haley is in the fight, and I think she's done a tremendous job so far, and she's holding her ground, and she's speaking truth to power and not afraid to go head-to-head with Donald Trump. And we'll just see what ends up. So, Is she in a better place for you, considering your statements about being in the center? Is she in a better place than Joe Biden is ideologically? Well, she's in a better place... F- looking at what we have right now and where everyone's been pushed to, she's trying to find that middle to where if the middle has some strength and power to where it can be supportive. A lot of people in America believe that, that we want to see our leader to be center, centrist, if you will. They can take a center left or a center right. They can't take an extreme. If extremes being pushed on them, they'll be looking somewhere else. We have to see what Should really Should she run as out. a third party candidate? She, I think she's going to be a very strong, uh, she's attractive for a third party, let's put it that way. Uh, very attractive from that standpoint. I don't know where she's going to go. I really don't. I, I, I don't know Nikki that well. I've met her a time or two, but I just don't know her well enough to say and try to speak for her. But uh, I think she feels comfortable where she's at. I think she's very comfortable when she speaks. I watch her and listen. It doesn't change. And that's the beauty about it. A person that believes in their heart what they're doing is the right thing to be done for our country. You don't have to worry about it. Just, just say what's on your mind and, and, and don't change your story because of what if your audience might be different. You're trying to play, play to them. Politicians so many times try to morph into what the audience wants rather than who they are. I think she's done a good job of finding out who she is and where she's at. The country right now has got to find its footing here. We've got to be part of the world order, and I think the country and the world depends on us tremendously for leadership, and that's what we're looking for. And you can't have a divided Congress and fighting it among itself and not coming together in a crisis. Ukraine's sure. a crisis. I support Ukraine. I hope all my I know, and I hope all like my it. Congress friends and that, and, uh, and Brian. Uh, Fitzpatrick and Jared Golden, what they're doing, I think, is tremendous. I support their effort. Look forward to working with them. All right, Senator Joe Manchin, West Virginia. Senator, good very grateful to, you, to have Casey, you today. To with Thank you, you for so getting up early. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> You're very sweet. Thank, Thank you, you very much. All right, up next here, federal officials reveal new information about the suspect accused of killing a nursing student in Georgia. Plus, Texas Governor Greg Abbott weighs in on Alabama's IVF ruling and desperately needed funding for Ukraine. How President Biden aims to try and get that. Up next. All right. Tomorrow, President Biden will convene the top four congressional leaders at the White House to try to ratchet up pressure for additional funding for Ukraine. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, marks the second anniversary of Russia's invasion by sitting down with CNN's Caitlin Collins and stressing just how important U.S. aid will be. Success forward will depend on USA. Yes. Not defending, not only defending line. Because if you defend, just defend, you give possibility to Russia, push you, yes, small steps back. But any, anyway, you, we will have these steps back. Small one. But when you step back, you lose people. 
we will lose people. All right. Joining us now is CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, who is live for us in Ukraine. Nick, uh, good morning to you. President Zelensky also says that millions could die without U.S. aid. Um, what is Ukraine's plan if this doesn't come through? Yeah, I mean, look, in short, they have to have one, but whatever plan they have is catastrophically not as good as plan A, which is if that $60 billion is finally approved by a Republican-led Congress. Essentially, Ukraine is going to have to dig deep, use more drones, potentially cheap types of uh, attack drone that they can replace artillery strikes with. They're going to have to rely more on European partners who simply don't have the kind of financial and military resources that the United States does. And they may also at some point have to be more strategic about which fights they pick along the front line. Without that, USA. The picture here for Ukraine is exceptionally bleak. We have heard a lot of rhetoric from uh, European leaders about how they will be able to continue pushing in ammunition funding, but it is more words than that they're actually able to match with sheer military materiel. And so Volodymyr Zelensky, in his speech yesterday, his press conference, really trying to straddle uh, a line where he makes it clear how bitterly bleak the situation is for Ukraine on the front line without U.S. military assistance, but also suggesting to, of course, those tr troops in the front lines and also civilians across the country to not dent their morale by saying without that U.S. military assistance, they could still potentially have a chance. He also gave us, for the first time, I think, the uh, an official number of Ukrainian military dead since the start of this full-scale invasion of 31,000. That is less than some Western military analysis has suggested, uh, and it's also about a fifth or sixth of what he said Russia has had inflicted upon it during this war as well. Uh, and so we also heard too in that press conference the tiniest glimmer of the possibility of diplomacy. It's a unilateral plan that Ukraine and its allies would put forward essentially telling Russia here's a plan for peace if you want it. Russia's likely to refuse it. But I found it interesting that he used that platform to talk about negotiations, not something we've heard of for a while, but really quite a troubling plea from Ukraine. They need that US money. Yeah, interesting indeed that he was willing to talk about it. Nick Payton Walsh uh, for us. Nick, thank you very much. And this just in, aides to Alexei Navalny say he was supposed to be part of a prisoner exchange before his death on February 16th. One of Navalny's closest advisors said on social media, quote, in early February, Putin was offered to exchange Vadim Krasikov, a killer, and an FSB officer who was serving a sentence for murder in Berlin for two American citizens and Alexei Navalny. CNN hasn't been independently able to verify those claims. All right, happening today, the ex-FBI informant indicted for lying about the Bidens heads back to court, plus the impact of Donald Trump's legal headwinds as he notches another primary victory. That's ahead. Donald Trump announced he is selling limited edition gold sneakers for $400. You can check them out on the feet of the guy getting dragged off your flight. <laughs> All right, 22 minutes past the hour. Here's your morning roundup. The suspect accused of killing an Augusta University student is an undocumented migrant from Venezuela. He faces murder and kidnapping charges after Lake and Hope Riley's body was found on campus last week. The FBI informant who lied about the Biden's business dealings will be in a Los Angeles courtroom today for a detention hearing. Alexander Smirnov remains in custody after the judge raised concerns about his lawyers trying to help him flee the country. 
AT&T giving a $5 credit to customers who were affected by a widespread outage that lasted 12 hours last week. Officials say the outage was caused by a network expansion error. I don't know. I was definitely frustrated to the tune of way more than five bucks when my phone didn't work for six hours that morning, but I guess we'll take it. All right. Now weather, a cold front in the West brings snow and wind to the Pacific Northwest and the Rockies today. While the Midwest braces for a severe storm threat, hundreds of heat records might get tight or broken across the central and eastern U.S. over the next several days. Our weatherman Van Dam joins us with all of it. Derek, uh, good morning. What do we got today? Yeah, good morning. You know, what comes with the heat comes the potential for fire weather. And unfortunately, with an advancing cold front, it's going to pick up the winds across the front range and into the plains. This is the scene yesterday coming out of Colorado Springs. Look at the smoke blanketing the horizon. Uh, some pop-up fires within this location. We have an elevated risk. Uh, as well as a critical fire danger across the uh, Texas and Oklahoma panhandle. So keep an eye on that. The winds will be the big story here going forward. Uh, could gust as high as 60 to 70 miles per hour, especially across some of those higher elevations. And with a cold front moving through, snow will fall in the mountains, and then that reduces the visibilities as well. Now, we won't see snowfall east of the Rockies because that's where we're going to be setting hundreds of temperature records, high temperature records going forward. And I want to draw your attention to Dallas Fort Worth today 95 degrees it is still February folks that is temperatures we would typically see at the end of May so very summer like heat that is driving north a big cool down this is the clash of the spring season here right so by Wednesday we'll only be in the 50s so big difference that's the cold front that's going to bring the snowfall to the Rockies remember reduced visibilities with the winds picking up and then just check this out, the severe weather potential across Chicago and into the Midwest for tomorrow. Keep an eye to the sky. Tornadoes are possible. Casey. All right. Our weatherman Van Dam. Derek, thank you very much. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Okay. All right. Ahead here, Texas Governor Greg Abbott weighs in on the controversial IVF ruling in Alabama. And CNN's Dana Bash joins us right here in studio to tell us all about her conversation with the governor. All right, a live look at Capitol Hill this morning. Good morning. Thanks for waking up with us. I'm Casey Hunt here in Washington. Republicans are still grappling with the fallout from Alabama's Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are people, leading multiple fertility clinics to stop offering IVF treatments in Alabama. Donald Trump over the weekend trying to give Republicans some cover on the issue. I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious little beautiful baby. I support it. But that does not mean that Republicans aren't struggling to talk about it. Here was Texas Governor Greg Abbott with our Dana Bash yesterday. Are you saying that families in Texas who are using IVF have extra embryo embryos that are frozen, do not need to worry? Well, so you raise fact questions uh, th that are complex that I simply don't know the answer to. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples, and that is uh, I have no idea mathematically the, the, the number of frozen embryos. Is it, is it one, ten, a hundred, a thousand? Uh, things like that matter. These are very complex issues where I'm not sure everybody has really thought about uh, what all the potential problems are, and as, as a result, uh, no one really knows what the potential yeah. answers are. 
Okay, let's bring in CNN anchor and chief political correspondent, Dana Bash. Uh, Dana, good morning. thank you so much for coming in this morning. Thank you. To we're, thrilled to, we're thrilled to have you. Um, and, you know, I watched this interview with great interest yesterday. Um, he seemed a little surprised by a question that I feel like was a question that was clearly on the minds of so many voters that was going to be asked. Mm -hmm. um, what did you hear in that answer from Governor Abbott? Because while, yes, there are certainly complexities to how we talk about this issue, mm -hmm. being able to say in a straightforward way, IVF should be available, clearly what Republican you know, leaders think they need to be saying to win elections. What were your takeaways from what he said? It's what they need to be saying to win elections nationally, maybe not so much in Texas. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Governor Abbott about it not isn't just because it is a national um, discussion, but because of the Texas abortion laws. And they're very strict. And that has become a national issue. We've seen a couple of uh, very high profile, more than a couple of very high profile challenges to uh, the abortion laws in Texas. And so, you know, the, the likely expected question out of that, given the discussion about IVF, is, well, what about the embryos and what do you consider the embryos? And I, I think that there is some grace for, for people who are now thinking about these frozen embryos and trying to figure out kind of what to do about it. I mean, you and I have, have talked about this. We've been hearing about it on the air. But when it comes to policy, right. uh, it, it it is, I guess, a little bit surprising that he didn't come in and that there, there isn't more of a, a discussion beforehand about what to do. But it does, it does show how incredibly complicated this is, not just, Casey, as a policy issue, as a human issue, as a family issue, but as a political issue. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can almost see him, you know, I think the thing for, um, you know, I don't think I've ever said this in public, but, you know, I had a personal experience with IVF. I have frozen embryos. And when he starts to talk about numbers, like, oh, it matters if there are thousands. Of, for every family, for every mother and father um, for whom that they're in that situation, um, the number, the ones that they have, I mean, sure, every, we, we know better than anyone that a frozen embryo is not a baby, but also mm -hmm. it represents, I mean, there's real grief when you mm -hmm. lose them. Um, what do you think elected leaders need to do in terms of thinking about how they talk about this issue in that human way that you say? Yeah. Um, first of all, yes, I, I, uh, it's, it's amazing that you talk about it because uh, a lot of people, I, I also... Haven't been willing to until now. Yeah, and I also went through IVF. I wasn't one of the lucky ones after years that actually had an extra embryo. And I do think about, well, what if I did? I mean, I had one that survived and that's my son. Uh, and what if I did? And it is, and it is really, really hard and it's complicated. Um, you know, I was reading, and I'm gonna, and I'm embarrassed because I can't remember the name of the of the author of this uh, essay in the Washington Post. But the way that she framed it was that an embryo is um, hope. Yes, is embryo is the hope of a child, uh, and it is uh, not an actual child yet. And I th think that that was really smart, and particularly for parents. Yeah. Never mind the policy and the politics, but just for parents, the way that, that they look at it. Um, but this, the one thing that Abbott said, Casey, was that um, we haven't really thought about it. It's new. Obviously, IVF is not new. It's been around yeah. for decades and decades and decades, like almost half a century. What is new is that it wasn't an issue before Roe was overturned. Right. And it wasn't something that they could think about. 
uh, or that they had to think about before Roe was overturned. And I've seen some people say, well, you know, Roe and IVF, they're not related. They absolutely are related for this issue because right. Alabama wouldn't have been able to do what they did, uh, I don't believe, without it going to the Supreme Court. Uh, without Roe being overturned. Right, exactly. All right, um, Dan is going to stay with us. And we are also joined now by this wonderful panel. Audie Cornish is CNN anchor and host of The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We have Republican strategist, former communications advisor for Senator Tim Scott's presidential campaign, Matt Gorman, and CNN political commentator, former White House senior policy advisor, Ashley Allison. Thank you all for being with us this morning. Um, Audie, let me just bring you um, into this conversation. Um, there's I love the- that you asked that question, by the way, of him. I think Which that was just oh. the, like... Where are you going with yeah, this, right? Right, because every state is going to have to deal with this question now. Where they're going, we think, probably, is fetal personhood, which is fundamentally this concept that you can be held liable for crimes committed against a child, and that definition is changing, as we're seeing in real time. Mm-hmm. The minute that Republicans caught the car with the dog, the, the dog caught the car, um, you are going to have to get into the world of enforcement. And enforcement is where the people are really seeing what it means to live in a world in which these laws have changed. Women have seen it in this first year, now IVF clinics, et cetera, the doctors who administer that. And IVF isn't really covered by insurance the way many people would like. A lot of the people who get it do have the means to get it, which means you're antagonizing a world of voters who are many women, many wealthy, many vote. Mm. And it's going to be a very different dynamic for, I think, a party that's actively trying to um, maintain or grab control of like a suburban woman voter. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the Republican struggle. And I think we should underscore, right, the reason these clinics are shutting down IVF in the wake of this ruling is because they are afraid of two things. One, being criminally prosecuted, Mm -hmm. right, to your point. And two, facing massive punitive financial damages, which I would argue, you know, it's there. There should be cir- circumstances where people can be can hold these clinics accountable for doing something like in this case, the couple the couple's embryos were destroyed. Yeah. Um, but of course, when the answer is, well, it's wrongful death, that's a much different situation um, than just providing damages. Matt, let me bring you um, into this conversation. The NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, um, is trying to advise Republicans on how to talk about this. Um, and they've got a couple bullet points that I think we can put up. Uh, on the screen there. One, they say that candidates should express support for IVF. Two, they should oppose restrictions on IVF. And three, they should campaign on increasing access to IVF. And again, this all only exists because Roe versus Wade was overturned. Um, What did you make? What was your assessment of how Abbott answered that question? What do you think Republicans need to be doing? A couple things on that. Number one, when I saw that memo sitting from at at a party committee like that, I recognized how big of a deal issuing that memo is and doing it openly. We would do those on occasion, not very often, and they would often be not released to the press. We, we wouldn't want that out there. But I think doing it publicly, quickly, and very simply, it wasn't a lot of complexity, contrast with the Abbott answer, in exactly what was in that memo. I think that's talked about how much Republicans as a party are spooked when it comes to having to talk about kind of the complexities of this. And I think when you, when you talk with the Abbott clip, the short answer is the right answer, and it's the easiest answer. The more you try to get in ins and outs, and you are just talking yourself into a wall here, and you're not helping yourself. And so I think that's why I contrast the Abbott answer with what the NRSC did. It's night and day. Yeah. Ashley, how, how do you weigh in on this? I mean, this obviously is a big part. It's, it's, it's one portion of this massive debate about abortion that Democrats are going to be focusing on for the next nine months. Yeah, I mean, when Roe fell, and even before Roe fell, we were— 
nervous, you know, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, that it was real, the reality that that seat was going to go to a conservative justice and most likely the fall of Roe would come was a precursor that happened, you know, a year and a half before it actually happened. And then when Roe fell, reproductive justice and reproductive freedom uh, rights advocates said that this is just the beginning. It will be a slippery, slippery slope to go into all forms of fertility and reproductive freedom. And so now we see to Dana's point, they caught the car. So go ahead and ride in it and, and and go to the destination that you want and let voters be very clear on what your destination is because you can put a memo out, but how will you actually govern? It's one thing to say something to get elected, but is that how you actually feel about the issue? And when you, or if you get elected and you get the House and you get the Senate and you get the White House, what, where does IVF stand then? And again, it is, forgive me, Casey, but no, it, no, is a, it is a state issue now. That's what Roe did. And that's why the Governor Abbott's of the world and all other governors uh, are, are having to answer this question because they are the people who aren't just going to say what's on the NRSC memo or the RGA memo, but actually make it the law of the land for the people in their states. Yeah, for sure. Um, so speaking of abortion, one of the top messengers for Democrats on this is Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Mm -hmm. And you also talked to her yesterday on State of the Union. I actually I want to kind of pull in a different topic here because we're a day out from the Michigan primary. Um, the Republican side, you know, Donald Trump's on a glide path there. It's also kind of a mess uh, internally in Michigan. I want to set that aside for a second because what's going on with Democrats is really um, interesting there because Rashida Tlaib, um, you know, Palestinian American, has come out and said that people should vote uncommitted mm -hmm. uh, in the primary. And uh, you asked Governor Whitmer over the weekend about that. Let's watch that. I'm, I'm not sure what we're going to see on Tuesday, to tell you the truth. I know that um, we've got this, this primary and we will see differences of opinion. I just want to make the case, though, that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that any vote that's not cast for Joe Biden supports a second Trump term. What, what did you make of that answer? I mean, it's a it's a big test day for her, too. It, it is um, that the, it, she was honest. They don't know. They don't know how big the uncommitted uh vote will be, which means they don't know how big the uh, protest vote against the incumbent Democratic president by members of his own party will be. And they're nervous about it. Um, she said that on camera, on the record, I've heard even more concerns privately from from Democrats in Michigan. And of course, it is um, it's a short term thing. They're trying to get President Biden's attention, but it is a long-term thing because he needs to win re-election in Michigan to win the White House back. Yeah, he does. Yeah, it's hard to tell if it's going to be a short-term thing. I think one thing I want to acknowledge is that Rashida Tlaib actually had pretty outstanding fundraising numbers um, the last quarter. Actually, you could probably talk about that as well. Um, so even though everyone thought, oh, everyone in the squad is going to be punished because of their position on Israel in a ceasefire, um, they actually do have support from some voters. Mm -hmm. And those are the same voters who are going to say, look to the Middle East. Look, I actually think what's going on in the Middle East is so dire, right? They're using the term genocide Joe, that this election doesn't matter to me because I feel I have a higher value at work. That is something Democrats have not figured out how to address, right? Because that's not a political thing. That's really kind of a fundamental values thing. And they have to find that language to talk to those voters. And I hear someone who says, don't know, don't have it, let's see. Ashley, you were invoked. So I think that 
the most important thing a voter can do is vote how they believe and the vote their values. And I think people get to do that in on Tuesday. I actually don't know what is going to happen. I remember talking to voters in Dearborn in 2020 around the election, around tough issues and folks wanting to have a commitment that this community would not be left behind in this Biden administration. Um, that's the personal component of just looking at it and being able to go into a voting booth and vote where your where your heart is and how you feel like your community is being impacted. On a political side, you know, if you're running a campaign, it is really hard to get a voter to do one thing in uh, February and then change their thinking in nine months to do something in November. And so it is a risk. I know they are saying this is a primary approach. But changing a voter be, voter's behavior from I'm not worth this guy at all to I'm going to vote with him is really, really hard. And that is why Democrats are nervous about what could happen on Tuesday. Remember, they're still voting in Democrat primary. It's not like they're, they're, they're personally sitting home. I think it's one thing to pound your fist in late February when it's Trump and Biden in late October, early November, and it's a clear choice. I even I have a hard time saying these guys are going to stay home personally. <laughs> also, the context matters, right? We don't know what will be going on in Gaza at that time. I think that is a huge question mark that would affect this question. Right, which is why, of course, we've seen this reporting that Biden has been basically telling Netanyahu, I don't have, I don't have the stomach for a year of this war. Mm -hmm. All right. Dana Bash, thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you. you being here thank today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, hopefully we'll see you other Mondays after um, all of your uh, great interviews on State of the Union. Audie, Matt, and Allison, Ashley Allison are staying with us. Ahead here, making his case for a second term, how President Biden should be talking to voters. Plus, ask, ask anything. David Axelrod joins us with our brand new feature up next. But Tam, honey, don't let him turn you into somebody else. <laughs> Guys. I am a U.S. senator, and I will never, ever compromise my integrity for Donald Trump. But I might if he made me vice president, hey! Yeah. All right, in the 36 hours since SNL ran that cold open, another Republican senator who has previously said that Trump is a loser for the party has fallen in line. Senator John Thune of South Dakota, who supported Senator Tim Scott in the race for president, endorsed Trump yesterday. Our panel is back, and we're joined now by the one and only David Axelrod, who has graciously agreed to let us ask Axe anything, within reason, of course, there's a little asterisk there. Uh, Axe, thank you so much for being here. Hey, uh, you're the only person I get up this early for, Casey, so <laughs> happy to be with you. It means the world. We're thrilled to have you. Um, let me just start with this Thune endorsement because of the things that Thune has been saying about what Trump would mean for the party. He has been saying that with Trump, Republicans lose elections. He previously said his message is going to have to appeal to independent voters and moderate Republicans. What do you see in Thune's decision here? I think I should also add he does potentially want to be the next Republican leader in the Senate. Yeah, right. He's the third of the three leading candidates for, the, uh, for that role uh, to uh, fall. Uh, to Trump. Listen, he's just repeating the Nikki Haley message, and we can see how successful that has been. Uh, you know, it only goes so far. So uh, I think Thune is just bowing to the, uh, to the inevitable. He knows Trump's going to be the nominee. He knows if he wants to be the leader in the Senate uh, that he's going to have to coexist uh, with Trump and the Trump supporters 
in the Senate uh, unless Trump falls away after this next election. Uh, so I th I'm sure he didn't do it with great enthusiasm, but he had to do it and he did it, which tells you where we are in this election. Yeah, it sure does. All right, Axe, so I want to turn to our, um, the, the panel has uh, submitted their Ask Axe Anything queries, um, and we'll stick with the Republican Party uh, at the outset here. Matt Gorman um, wants to know, if you're advising Nikki Haley right now, what are you telling her? <laughs> I'm telling her, boss, we got a week left in this campaign. We've gone 0 for 5. We've, we've fought valiantly. We're the last person standing, we've, but we've gone 0 for 5, and we could go 15, 0 for 15 next week. Donald Trump will be the nominee of the Republican Party by the middle of March. And you have to figure out what, how you want to spend this last week. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with what your future objectives are. Uh, do you want to be the candidate in 2028? Uh, if so, uh, do you want to lean in or lean back a little here uh, and try and uh, mollify these Trump forces. Maybe the best strategy is just to continue with the Cassandra strategy and say uh, he's not going to win uh, and uh, we need a winning candidate, but do it in a more muted way. Or if that's not your objective, maybe you do want to lean in and instead of just telling, Trump, uh, telling people why Trump can't win, you tell him why he shouldn't win, uh, which is something that she has avoided thus far. Uh, yeah. So we'll see what, which way she goes. So, Matt, what do you think she wants in your party? I think that's a good question. I mean, I think it's a little bit intoxicating, right? To it's a very human thing to suddenly stop this thing you, that's consumed you for the better part of, what, two years? I think it's, it's very hard to suddenly put that car that was in drive and suddenly shift it into park. I, I, I am unsure as well, but you're right. She's not helping herself the longer she goes now. Yeah. All right, Axe, let's turn to um, your party, because obviously Joe Biden uh, has challenges. And Audie Cornish oh. uh, wants to know, uh, the diploma divide or the gender gap, which of those trends is the bigger problem for Democrats? So here I'm going to display the uh, professional skills that I learned over a lifetime in politics and, <laughs> and choose both. <laughs> uh, because I think uh, both are key to this election. Education is the greatest predictor in uh, these days uh, of a person's vote, and uh, Democrats have done better and better uh, with voters with a college degree, but they can't surrender voters who don't have a college degree. Joe Biden did five points better than Hillary Clinton among white uh, non-college voters, and that was uh, the margin of difference in this last election. By the same token, uh, he all, uh, Democrats have been winning, uh, particularly since the uh, Roe verdict on the strength of the women's vote. And this IVF thing uh, is going to just uh, turbocharge that. I think it's going to continue to be an election. And they need this gem gender gap. So I expect he's going to have an economic lane that speaks to those non-college voters, both white and non-white, and he's going to push hard on the, uh, on the issue of abortion rights. Yeah. Well, Audie, um, you know, you and I were talking about this over the weekend, too. Um, what is your sense, particularly um, on the point uh, Axelrod made on voters of color, of, of what the issue is for Democrats here. And we were talking a lot about what Trump said about black voters, his appeal to black men, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where when you put it in a Venn diagram, there is a sliver and we, you can say those are um, men of color with no college degrees, um, where you can have both parties saying, look, maybe 
maybe we have a chance here or, oh my goodness, we have to do more work here. And that's something we focus on a lot in the media. And sometimes I just want to broaden it out to say, actually, there's a broader trend line going on, especially with young men. And over time, um, especially I think Democrats, uh, D David can jump in, um, are going to have to keep an eye on if they are losing ground with male voters on, mm -hmm. on very fundamental issues. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I, and I think uh, this issue, you know, I don't dismiss this issue. Uh, Ashley and I, I think we're in a discussion on this the other day. I don't dismiss the issue of young black men. Uh, and I think yeah. that's something that the, uh, the Biden campaign and Democrats need to keep an eye on because I don't think it's just a, uh, uh, you know, a statistical blip. Uh, this has been a trend line. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, there is a, there, 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 are, there is a, uh, uh, an economic track that has to be pursued here uh, yeah. as well. Um, all right, our last, last but certainly not least, Ashley wants to know, what do you think the best way is for Joe Biden, the, the candidate, the president, to communicate with voters himself? So, Ashley, I need to, you to clarify, are you talking message-wise or method-wise? Method. Method, with a D. So, look, uh, I think that... Uh, Joe, I, I did a podcast that's up right now with Bill Bradley, and he told a great story about Joe Biden confronting one of the Russian leaders back in the early 80s and uh, s slamming his hand down on the table and saying, come on, Lexi. Uh, I don't know what I can say on, uh, on this show, but he said, come on, Alexi, don't shit a shitter. Don't shit a shitter. <laughs> and, you know, that is actually Biden. I mean, Biden ha is chippy. And I think, you know, we hear that he's saying these things in fundraisers. Why isn't he saying it in public? I think what Biden needs to do is really confront Trump uh, in a very uh, kind of uh, colloquial way and, uh, and, and in ways that will go viral. So short kind of phrases like, uh, you know, uh, acting like a jackass doesn't make you strong. You know, things like that that are very much Biden-esque. Yes. I think we'll get uh, we'll get play in social media. And I would encourage. So in that sense, I would encourage Biden to be Biden. Uh, and I think that it also shows more strength and being more in the moment. Uh, now, you know, it yeah. could get out of control. So you'd worry about that if you were an <laughs> aide. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, that uh, that would be important. Ashley, very briefly, has he been doing that? We've heard more curse words, I would say, from Biden. Yeah, it's spicy for 6 a.m. Um, but <laughs> no, I, I think that's the right move is to get him out on OTRs in the field, having conversations with people saying, you know, um, with a voter to some of the lines that uh, that actually said my mom is watching. So I'm not going to say it right now. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, fair. yeah, it's but it, it, having those conversations, allowing to have conversation and then his campaign, get those conversations out on social media. All right. David, Audie, Matt, Ashley, thank you all so much for great your time to be today. With you. Great to have you, Axe. All right, before we go, I'll leave you with this. It was a wildest dream come true for a young Taylor Swift fan. Nine-year-old Scarlett Oliver is battling an aggressive form of brain cancer. She was given 12 to 18 months to live, according to her stepmom, who posted on social media that Scarlett's dream was to meet Taylor Swift and also receive the coveted 22 hat, which Taylor gives away at each of her shows. And this Friday in Sydney, here's what happened.
could watch that over and over and over again, right? All right, we're sending our very best wishes to Scarlett as she fights. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.